Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? TGIF Sober Stories Crew. On deck today, I have a fantastic conversation with Amy C. Willis. Amy is a certified EFT practitioner. We'll get into that in more detail in a minute. A Reiki 2 practitioner and a sober coach who brings a holistic approach to her offerings. Amy and I have been in and around the sober space together for a long time, and I really value her empathy and her heartfelt approach to choosing not to drink. Today, Amy and I dig into her experience as a queer woman in sobriety, how she utilizes tools like EFT to support her sobriety, and some of the complicated family dynamics that often go into our decision not to drink. After you give today's episode a listen, tag us and Amy and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, my friends, I am so excited to welcome Amy C. Willis to the podcast. Amy, welcome to Sober Stories. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. I am really excited to talk to you and hear more about your story. As we were preparing before we we hit record, I realized I feel like I've known you for so long and I actually don't know a whole lot about your actual sober story. So I'm really excited <laughs> to dive in today and I know you have so much goodness and so much like this wealth of knowledge to bring to the people who are listening to this podcast today. So let's kick it off and dive right in. Can you tell us the story of Amy and Boose? Is it a short story? Mm-hmm. It is a long story. <laughs> let's get into it. Yeah. Let's let's call it a mid-length story because mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff in there. So I personally grew up in a home where my dad had a very severe addiction to alcohol. So it was always Mm. around as I was growing up. It was just normal in the environment. So that's sort of the starting point. And then when alcohol entered my life, I was about 16. And my entry point was, I think, like a lot of my peers and my friends, it was experimental and Mm. social and exploratory. But what was also happening in my life at the time was my family life was imploding from the inside Mm. out. And so what I found immediately in alcohol was the option to press pause on all of the stress and the trauma and the pain that I was living in every single day and Mm. had nothing, no real outlet for. Mm -hmm. And so from the outside, it probably looked like what I was doing was very similar to my peers, but internally it it functioned very differently for me. Mm. And even within a year or so of starting to drink, I was doing things that I would probably say were pink flags. Like I was hiding alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was drinking alone in my room just as a way to cope in in day-to-day situations. And so, yeah, looking back on that, I I can see that as like, oh, that's probably something somebody should have been keeping an eye on. And Mm. there was a lot going on in my household at the time. And 
that kind of stuff just like was under the radar, I think. And I continued to drink. I continued to build tolerance to it. And again, outwardly, things looked fine. Like I Mm. went to undergrad and I went to grad school and I had a lot of really awesome experiences and opportunities that I went after. I was always working and paying my bills and I had a social life and partners Mm. And internally was where it really started to show up for me. I was really struggling. I know now that my baseline in terms of my mental health and my moods is Mm. generally pretty stable. I mean, of course, there are ups and downs like that's life. And that's, you know, just like the range of the human experience. But I can see now that putting so much alcohol into my body so often, it's a depressant and it really negatively impacted me. The number of times... I would wake up after a night of heavy drinking and just kind of feel indifferent about whether or not I wanted to live and just like Mm. keep going, you know, and that's, again, looking back on that, I'm like, that's not normal for me. That's not what my baseline is. And I could see how I was being pulled in that direction based Mm. on, you know, the impact that alcohol was having on me. And so that was not really enough to indicate or to make me want to question it or look at it. I didn't even really connect my mental health and moods to Mm. my alcohol consumption. So I kept drinking. I was drinking more and more. And I honestly like it feels shocking now knowing what I know, but I didn't, I never thought about it. It didn't worry me. I didn't think about health concerns. I didn't ask myself if I had a problem. I didn't even connect my drinking patterns to my dad and what he was going through, right? And so I think that that speaks to how normalized it it is in the world, but also how normalized it was in my life and how much of a staple it became. And so I would say the biggest turning point for me was when my dad unexpectedly passed away in 2014 Mm. and he drank himself to death. And Mm. that did not immediately prompt my sobriety. In fact, my addiction got a lot worse in an effort to not deal with the grief, to push it away, to put it to the side because I didn't think I could. I didn't, I thought it would kill me. I didn't think I could manage the big feelings that go along along with losing a parent. And also we had like such a complicated relationship. And so now all of Mm. that was just unresolved and on me to fix. And yeah, so I drank heavily for another year or so. And sometime in 2015, after I would say the acute grief had passed, I was still drinking a ton, but it was at this point in my life that I started to, honestly, I can't even pinpoint a moment, but I started to somehow, and thank goodness, look at Mm. alcohol even slightly differently than I had. And I, this question kept popping up for me and I don't remember what prompted it or anything like that, but I was like, is this it? Mm. Is this my whole life. Like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And it being like thinking about drinking, being consumed with it, planning it, doing it, being hungover, blacking mm-hmm. out, all of that. Like, is this it? This And, and I just arrived at one point that like, this can't can't be it. This cannot be all that there is for me. And mm. I didn't know what else there could be or what else there would be. 
but I knew that something had to change. And I literally just had the example of my dad going down the road that I was on and his life ending Mm. so early, you know? And I was like, this is, I'm on this road. So I know, I know where it goes. I know what happens here. And I don't want that. I didn't want Mm. to go down that road. I didn't want to walk in my dad's footsteps in that regard. I would say over the next year or so, I kind of tried to get sober. I mean, the term sober curious didn't even exist at that point, but (laughs) I I would say... We had Ruby on the podcast and when she said her book came out in 2019, I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. What did we do before 2019, Ruby? Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So... I would say, yeah, I would say I was just kind of getting curious, not even necessarily with the intention of quitting drinking, but just like seeing what the experience could be like if I did it a little bit differently. There were also stints where I did try to not drink and I revisited a bunch of times. I don't love the word relapse, so I don't use it so oh, much, yeah. but I do like revisited. I love that reframe. Yeah. So I revisited a bunch of times and I learned a lot and stumbled a lot. And I made, you know, maybe not the greatest choices, but it got me to where I am. And so I can be grateful for that whole thing. In August 2016, I made what felt like a true and real and honest decision that I was going to not drink. And I could not stomach the idea of not drinking forever. And I know that's like a mental hurdle for a lot of people. It's hard to swallow. Yeah. It's real. And so for me, I was like, I can commit to this for six months. I will not drink for six months. That feels doable, manageable. And I gave myself permission to reassess the situation at the six-month mark. And then when the six-month mark approached, I was petrified Mm. at the thought of drinking again. And Mm. I knew that despite the work that I had done And despite this evidence that I had created for myself of what I could do, I knew that I would end up back where I was and that things Mm. would continue to get worse because I had changed, but alcohol hadn't changed, right? Right? And I say that to my clients all the time. I'm just like, it is, it is immovable. It is still going to be an addictive substance. It's still going to function in your body in the exact same way. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I've changed, but alcohol hasn't changed. And Mm. I know my relationship with it. I wasn't interested in trying to moderate. Honestly, Mm. the biggest thing was fear. And so it was at that six month mark that I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done now. I felt so much relief that I had made a decision and that I no longer had to do the mental back and forth of, well, what about in this situation or only this time or what about, you know, it just took up so much space. I, I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in giving it that space anymore. And so I made the real decision. August 22nd, 2016 is my sober date. So I'm about six and a half years sober. Getting sober has had this profound impact on my life. 
I mean, when I look at my life now compared to seven years ago, I am a completely different person. I mean, you know, I'm a sober coach. I've been Mm -hmm. working in this field for almost four years now. Mm. I felt so inspired after getting sober and changing my life that I really wanted to support other people in doing this, particularly women Mm. and queer folks, right? Because like the way that alcohol targets queer folks and women, the experiences that we have with it, there are a lot of differences and there are a lot of specificities that are overlooked in a lot of programs, I find. Mm, So I built my... I built my coaching practice to meet the needs of particular people who struggle in different ways. And so, Mm. yeah. So in addition to being a coach, I'm also a writer and a speaker and Mm. an EFT practitioner, which I think we're going to talk about, and a meditation teacher. And I just feel the most, I don't know profound gratitude for Mm. getting to do what I do. And it just feels like I'm exactly in the right spot. And I get to do this powerful work in supporting people and making their lives better. And I just feel so grateful every single day that my clients choose me to support them in this meaningful Mm. work. Do you think 2016, Amy, could have ever pictured where you are right now? Never in a million years. (laughs) Yeah, she wasn't even sure she could do a sober week, let alone this many years and actually Mm. supporting other people and changing their lives in this way. Never. But I love that because sobriety for me, it just like anything is possible. Anything is possible. And I think that's the thing that we don't recognize on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. I felt like taking alcohol out of my life would make my life so small. And it's in fact the exact opposite. Like my life has expanded so significantly. I was having the same conversation with a client last night around this idea of what they said was like, I just, I'm, I'm, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to think this. I don't want to do this. Like I'm not having fun in early sobriety. And I'm like, everything you see all the people on Instagram, all the people who are on podcasts, we were you. We are just three years, five years, 10 years down the road. And Uh the version of life that we live now was unfathomable to us Uh in those early days. I asked that question knowing your answer was going to be, there's no way, because I think that that's how everyone feels. It's like, I never could have imagined that this is what I'd be doing. I never could have imagined that I'd be doing XYZ hobby or starting a new business or leveling up in a career in a way we never anticipated because Mm -hmm. of the scope of like alcohol just creates this smaller world where everything Uh is about that one thing Uh and there's no space for anything else. And so when we remove that, I think one of the things that scares people sometimes is this idea of space and this idea of, well, what do I do now? And what am I going to fill this energy with when we talk about how much we are how much time energy we're spending on drinking, thinking about drinking, recovering exactly like what you said, that can take a lifetime. That's that's all of our time. And so when we don't have that, it's a little scary on the other side. There are so many pieces in this that I really, really loved. And I wanted to ask more about the, is this it feeling of, is this my whole life? Is this what I'm here to do? Is this all that I get? Is this all that there is? Because I think that that is something that a lot of people can feel even just outside of alcohol. I think that that is this it? Is this all there is? Thought uh-huh. is a universal thought in some ways. And uh-huh. the other side of it is like the answer is usually no. The answer is usually uh-huh. no, this isn't all there is. 
So how did you bridge that gap between having this thought and then actually taking action, actually moving forward? Mm-hmm. I think what you just said was like the action piece, right? I don't know about you, but I am a, I spend a lot of time thinking. I spend a lot of time <laughs> up here and our thoughts and our beliefs and all of that shape our reality. And so I think when you spend so much time in there, you can really convince yourself like, this mm. is it. Like, this is this is all there is for me. And so I think the bridge is the action. It doesn't have to be huge. In fact, it's probably best if it's not huge right away right? because change is hard. And yes, there was the component of I'm not going to drink anymore. But for me, the questions that I started to ask myself... And that's not so much an action, but the actions that followed those questions. I, I don't know if I can remember details of things that I did at that time, but mm-hmm. asking different questions of myself and then actually being like, okay, what would it look like if I didn't drink tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And just creating that different experience without mm-hmm. commitment of any kind, without making it mean something other than what might happen if fill in the blank. Mm. And I think just like approaching it from, again, a place of curiosity is a really excellent starting point. It's way less Mm. uh, scary, I think, for people as an entry point. There isn't so much weighing on it. It's just kind of like, let's just see what happens here. And Mm. so I think for me, that's sort of what that process looked like of, you know, starting to ask different questions of myself and then actually taking action Mm. and doing things outside of of what I had been so accustomed to doing. And Mm -hmm. that could look like hobbies or trying a new activity or going for a solo, whatever, hike, trip, (laughs) whatever, but just something that's like slightly different than what you normally do because Mm. you are creating possibility for yourself in that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think curiosity is one of the most useful tools that we have in our tool belts. Mm -hmm. And, And I think think even too with this idea of this is this it it's sometimes the active refusal of that idea like I reject <sighs> that I reject that this isn't it even though I feel this right now even though this is this stuck feeling even though my brain can't necessarily think about other possibilities I'm choosing to reject this idea and be curious about what else might be out there even if I don't know what it is yeah yeah I agree. And I think this is all hindsight. So if anybody definitely is out there where we were, please know this is not the way that I was thinking in the moment. Five and six years later, respectively. Yeah. Yeah. So just knowing also that even that thought of like, is this it? Like this can't be all there is, is a reflection, I think, of the smallness that you were speaking Mm. of earlier that alcohol shrinks everything. I thought my life was over in giving Mm. up drinking because I was like, I'm never going to have fun again. I'm never going to be able to socialize. I'm never going to be able to enjoy a concert or a dinner, like anything, Mm -hmm. because I had made small or my understanding of what these experiences could be. I made that so small through alcohol. I think, you know, again, for anybody who might be like, 
grappling with or just getting curious about their relationship with alcohol, just know that like there is a very mm-hmm. particular filter on your thoughts and your experiences right now <laughs> through alcohol. And we don't have to, as you just said, accept that as true. Mm-hmm. We can challenge it. And again, we don't necessarily need to know the answer. We don't need to know what is on the other side, but we can say, actually, no. What if that isn't true? You know, mm-hmm. you don't even need to positively affirm that you know that it's not right. true. You could even just right. challenge, like, what if it's not? What might be possible right, exactly. if it's not true? I wonder why that is. I'm just like thinking about, I, I'm such a neuroscience geek, geek. So I'm like, what is it about alcohol that limits that scope of thought so much? Because it's different than just about everything else. There's yeah. not another thing that I can think of that is so socially ingrained in our society that is so interlinked with, I'm either going to have a big life or not. If I give up this thing, my life is over. <laughs> you know, I, I recently just stopped eating meat and I'm like, I never once had this thought of like, oh my God, if I stop eating meat, my life is going to be over because it doesn't, uh-huh. I don't, it doesn't give you that same filter. And I'm curious if you have any, I don't know. I, I asked this question, not knowing the answer myself of like, why is that? <laughs> Honestly, I I'd love to know the answer. And I yeah. don't could be part and parcel to, you know, what I was speaking about earlier in terms of the depressant quality and like the depressive lens, Mm. that might be part of it. And just having in my experience, I'll speak about my experience, everything kind of cycling around and revolving Mm. around alcohol. I had, you know, baked it into pretty much everything I was doing and life outside of it just felt like it couldn't be a possibility. So I'm, Mm. I'm not sure. I don't know that that was really an answer, (laughs) but I asked you a question that I, I don't know the answer to either. So that was setting you up for a big question mark. You know, I'm curious (laughs) what it was like when you first quit drinking, when you first had that, let's see, you you said six months starting at the end of 2016. What was that like for you? What were those early days like? Yeah. So like the early, early days, like the first six months, I would say, oh, there's no sugarcoating it. It was brutal. (laughs) And I did actually, I did still very much live into the belief of Mm. what is my life even going to look like? Like, I, I don't think I can have fun. I don't think I can socialize. All the things that used to be fun just seem unappealing now in the yeah. absence of alcohol. And so I, I spent a lot of time not going out and not socializing because it didn't feel safe for me. Mm. And I was very interested in prioritizing my sobriety. And so I spent a lot of time by myself thinking and mostly, you know, I'm sure I had a few pity parties along the way. (laughs) And then, you know, I got to that six month mark and I was like, what a relief. What a relief that I don't have to like back and forth on this. And I think it, it was at that time and that, you know, I now had enough separation from me and alcohol that I could actually start to think about Mm. what was enjoyable what was fun for me? Did I mm-hmm. actually like doing that thing or do I not like doing that thing, but I had to pour alcohol all over it to like get through it, you know, and yeah. like not having to do those things anymore. After it got over the initial brutal hump, it was interesting. I got to explore a lot. Part of me felt excited. Still part of me wasn't sure what the next steps were going to look like. So there was just mm-hmm. a lot of figuring it out. Looking at different parts of my life that were not actually in service of my 
sobriety and just Mm. making changes, you know, making a lot Mm. of changes, whether that was who I was hanging out with, the types of things I was doing, how I was moving my body, what I was thinking about. So it was it was a big time of transformation. Mm. I prefer not to sugarcoat it. Yeah. I'm never going to be the person. I'd never experienced the pink cloud. Didn't happen for me. So I'm oh, yeah, never no. the person that's like, oh my God, you quit drinking and you're going to feel amazing. Your life is going to be instantly better because it's a huge transformation. It is a huge shift in the way we are showing up. It's a huge shift in the way our bodies are working. There's so many different living parts. And I think that it's better to be, I'd I'd rather be honest with folks than say like, it's going to instantly feel amazing. Because one of the things that that does is put people at risk for returning to alcohol if they don't experience that. If they're like, well, if this is going to feel this bad, I might as well go back. I'd rather them hear you say that for six months, it was actually pretty hard. And now six years down the road, you have this big, beautiful, expansive life. Because I think that's more powerful than saying, as soon as you remove the substance, you're going to feel great. And one of the things you said about this distance, I think is really important. And, And this is something I share in my work too, is like, I'm not asking you for forever. I am asking you for a set amount of time to get a physical, mental, and emotional distance from alcohol. Because when you are so adjacent to it, when you are right up next to your last use or the last, like all of these things that your body and your brain and your spirit are connecting with alcohol, you can't, you you still have that lens. You still have that, Mm -hmm. like those beer goggles on, if you will. And it's not until you can let some healing happen and get get some distance and get some separation from it, both physically, but also mentally, emotionally, Hmm. that's when you can kind of look at this from more clarity and you can make more informed choices and you can decide and you can potentially revisit and decide, okay, is this actually something that serves me? Because if you ask yourself that same question as soon as you quit drinking, the answer is probably going to be different. You you just don't have that space from it to to be able to know that. One of the things Mm -hmm. that you just said a minute ago that I really, really love and want to go back to is some of the activities that you used to do, you didn't do because they didn't feel safe. And I think Mm -hmm. that this is actually a really powerful reframe with this idea of missing out, of FOMO, of not doing the same things that you used to do when you were drinking. And I Uh think that there's the feeling of loss and a feeling of missing out in that for a lot of people. And I Uh like the idea of reframing it to more of like a protective lens. Like I am Uh protecting myself. I am protecting Uh my sobriety. I'm choosing mm-hmm. things that do feel safe. I am rejecting things that do not feel safe. What did that look like for you when you were first exploring that idea? Well, the first thing I would say is I gave myself permission to say no. Mm. And like previously, I said yes to everything and I mm-hmm. had zero boundaries. Mm. And so I gave myself permission to actually say no to stuff. And actually, again, in the theme of spaciousness, gift myself some time to actually consider if I had the capacity to do what was being asked of me or requested Mm. of me in the form of a social event or whatever it was, while also still staying in my own integrity around my sobriety. Mm. And I will say for the first six months, it was a lot of no's because I was just like, uh, 
no, no, I'm not going to go hang out at a bar with you because <laughs> for, and now if somebody was like, do you want to go get a drink? Obviously I'm not drinking alcohol, but sure, I'll go wherever and yeah. drink something non-alcoholic and it doesn't matter to me at all. But yeah. in the early days, of course, I'm not going to go to a bar with you. Mm. Of course, I'm not going to go to an event where the focal point is drinking. Of course, I'm not going to go to, uh, you know, uh, whatever social event or engagement where everybody else is consuming. And I will literally be the only one, which means we're going to be on a different level. I'm not going to have an ally here. So like those things, that's not going to work for me right now. And again, I'm not there anymore. It doesn't matter to me. I do find being around um, folks who are drinking heavily to be just quite dull at this point. So like <laughs> I don't go for different reasons yeah. now. You know, I'm just like, this is not... I'm like, you couldn't catch me in a crowded bar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, this is super not fun. Right. Um, <laughs> and like, I'm a good time, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the first thing is just like, I'm giving myself permission to say no. And mm. I'm really going to prioritize taking care of myself. And I mm. need to say that those two things were revolutionary for me yeah. because I had just spent years making everybody else comfortable and abusing my body in a variety mm. of ways. And so actually prioritizing myself and my needs in that regard around my sobriety and being able to say no and like that doesn't actually work for me. Those two things were really monumental for that experience yeah. to make that possible. Yeah. I just think it's such a protective reframe of like, I'm, uh -huh. I'm choosing this to take care of myself and I'm choosing this in service of myself. I'm not missing out. I'm actively yeah. choosing to pursue what feels safe and to yeah. avoid what does not feel safe and understanding too, that might shift over time. Like you said, you can go to a bar yeah. now. I agree with you. Like I, I call them the things you can and cannot fuck with. Like I have no desire to be in a bar. Loud, yeah. noisy, sticky. Ew, gross. I don't want that. Yeah. A patio where everybody's drinking craft beer and there's sunshine and there's places for my kids to play and I can drink a lemonade or something. Like, yeah, I'd love that. Those, those things change over time. Mm-hmm. If you've been hanging out with Sober Stories for a while, you know all about Quitlet, the genre of literature covering the diverse experience of quitting drinking. In fact, we've had some amazing authors on the podcast like Ruby Warrington of Sober Curious and Amanda E. White of Not Drinking Tonight. Since I know you already enjoy plugging into your sober space via your headphones, we've got the perfect partner for you. It's time to check out Audible. Audible is the leading creator and provider of premium audio storytelling, enriching the lives of millions of listeners every day. Books on Tape have gotten a serious upgrade. With over 200,000 podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals available, you can tune into your latest Quitlet read on your next hot girl walk or school pickup line. Get a free 30-day trial, including one credit or two for Prime members, good for any premium selection by visiting audibletrial.com slash sober stories. That's audibletrial.com slash sober stories. As a person who spills her guts about her drinking problem on the internet, the number one question I get asked on a daily basis is what my favorite NA rec is. Listen, I've been sober for five years and I've tried them all. I can earnestly tell you that Ritual Zero Proof is my tried and true non-alcoholic spirit brand. One I regularly restock. 
the one making my recycling bin clank around again, just like the bad old days, except this time I don't have hangovers. The one that even my normie friends tell me is pretty fantastic. You're gonna wanna go ahead and order you some other tequila alternative, mixing it with some lime and tahini, and sip the summer away without the splitting headache and regret. It has a ginger base, which gives it a nice bite that you get from like a spicy margarita. Use the code RZPSTORIES for 20% off your order at RitualZeroProof.com. Cheers, y'all. I want to get into one of the things you touched on earlier about the spaces you build for women and queer people and uh-huh. a little more about your experience as a woman and a queer person in sobriety, in addiction, in this field, especially with this idea that a lot of spaces aren't made for us and how that uh-huh. has been for you and what it's like creating those spaces. Uh, so I guess my uh-huh. question is, that wasn't really a question, but what, what's that been like <laughs> for you? What's your experience in that? Yeah, as a drinking person, I definitely leaned on alcohol, I would say, and other substances within the community for support and as coping. Mm. I'm sure you're familiar with the stats, but queer folks, those within the LGBTQ plus community struggle with higher rates of mental health issues, higher rates of substance use issues compared to the straight community by a lot. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Minority stress is one of them, like higher rates of chronic stress, living in a heteronormative world, Mm. ongoing stigma, discrimination, the microaggressions we all just endure on a day-to-day, right? Like the number Mm. of times people just assume I'm straight because of how I look. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. We as a community endure more trauma earlier on in our lives, which we know that, you know, there's a relationship between trauma and an increased likelihood of developing an addiction or a substance use issue. And all of these things negatively impact so many big buckets of our lives, like Mm. our economic status, housing, employment, healthcare and all of it. And I think this like really interesting thing happens in gay bars. And I certainly Mm -hmm. can speak to this in my experience. Historically, gay bars have been this site of safety and community. And they've been a safe space where you could show up and be seen and celebrated for all of you. There's also within that same space, heavy and encouraged substance use. And Mm. there's really, there's an interesting convergence around coming out, which is around the age of 20 and the legal drinking age, which is Mm. 19 in Canada, in most places in Canada, 21 in the US. And so it's like, Like these rites of passage are like bumping up against each other and happening at times in our lives that are confusing where we're seeking community. And then there's this like overlap with substances. When we enter, you know, gay bars for the first time, we often enter with increased levels of vulnerability to Mm -hmm. substance use, increased trauma. And I think it just really complicates those spaces because we have this really strong association with community 
community and connection Mm. and belonging, which we all, all humans need. And we find that here and it's coupled with the substances that are flowing and everybody's using. And so it's just like a really complicated tinderbox of things happening. You know, all of that was part, like part of my experience. Like I was kicked out when I was 18. When I came out Mm. to my mom, I was met with homophobic remarks Mm. and it's always been, I mean, we don't have a relationship now. It's always been a source of tension. I have since cultivated chosen community and I have found Mm. my people and that's been so beautiful. And it's also been out of necessity. And, you know, I started to really feel like I was seen and celebrated and I could connect with people and I could belong in gay bars many moons ago. I'm so Mm -hmm. old now. It's insane sometimes (laughs) when I think about it. But but like more than 20 years ago, when I first started hitting up the gay bars as a young dyke, I was like, oh, my people. Mm. And that happened to be in places that were serving a lot of alcohol. And that just Mm. became really interwoven with the experience. It's Mm. complicated. Absolutely. And I think that it's not spoken of enough about the higher rates of trauma, mental health, substance use. And I think we're getting a a handle on it. We're getting a viewpoint of it. We're starting to see it. Uh And there's still not this shift yet. I know there are like some small niche spaces. Like, for example, it makes me think of um, Queer Sober Austin. It's run by Inaya Zawina. She's wonderful. She has created spaces for queer sober people to interact. Uh And I see these Uh kind of popping up around different places, but there's not this broader known entity yet for marginalized populations of various forms to be able to be seen. And I think Uh one of the things that I speak a lot about is how these larger societal recovery spaces, modalities, frameworks are are not built for us. They are built for straight white men. And Uh though we can adapt and we can update things and change language and work on being more inclusive, there's still a fundamental difference in something that was made for us and something that was not. So in the work that you do, what particular considerations do you make to speak to these different populations that historically have not had spaces built for them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, coming with my own lived experiences um, as a queer person and as a woman, and I'm sure you can speak to this too, but it's just like, there's already a knowing, right? Like I can Mm. hear and hold whatever another woman or a queer person has to say about their experience with substances, family, rejection, community, and chances are we have a lot of overlap in those experiences. So I think just already being finding the common ground with Mm. people on their lived experiences, someone, a queer person. And also I just want to say like very quickly as a caveat, queer and like the LGBTQ plus community is so diverse. So I know you know, but like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're not assuming similarities. Like there's already so much diversity under that umbrella. And so I don't want to say that, you know, my lived experiences are the same as everybody's under that umbrella. Certainly not. You know, when you don't have to explain, for example, Mm. what it feels like to be rejected by a family member because of your queerness. Mm. When you just Mm -hmm. say like, blah, 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 this is my experience. And you're met with somebody who knows that experience 
experience intimately, you are already so much further ahead Mm, in in the work that you can do together and how you can heal together. Mm. And knowing that you are never going to be looked at differently because you are trans or because Mm. you are bi or whatever it is. So I think some of that stuff is already built in. And then in terms of some of the more like structural differences, I think it's also just about the tools that I offer, the approaches that we take in the work that we're doing to actually see the whole person and to see Mm. all of their experiences and really work with them as a whole, really, and recognizing and knowing what it means for women, for example, like being targeted by alcohol companies, living in the patriarchy and the impacts that that have on stress levels, expectations, uh, coping tools, motherhood, all of it. Mm. Those things aren't even considered in so many programs out in the world. You know, when I built my company almost four years ago, and thank goodness there are so many more options available now, but a lot of what what exists now didn't even exist Mm -mm. four years ago. No, And it's so great to see it. It's so great to see it because we do have needs and I'm just going to say it beyond AA, right? Beyond a very old program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A very old program that was created by two middle-class white men in their own reflection based on their needs at the time. And for folks who find that that program works for them, amazing. Options are always great. And for the folks who don't feel seen or represented in a program like that, Thank goodness other things exist. We are frank about that in this space of, of yes. AA is not the end-all be-all answer for everyone. And it's wonderful for the yeah. people it helps. And it's a space yeah. that was not created for everyone and has its own mm-hmm. limitations. And I think yeah. that the answer is not AA or your program or my program or whatever. I think the answer is more option, all of the above. Yeah. And the more yeah. avenues for being well and being healed that can be opened, And the more people that we can see ourselves reflected in, which is the whole point of what we do here at Sober Stories, is to share people's experiences so that somebody can feel reflected in that, the better. Mm -hmm. And I think that all it does is just give more entry points. It gives more access to to being well. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation last season on the podcast with Lazarus Fletcher, who shared, uh, he's a trans man and shared that his experience in AA, he was told to not talk about being black and being trans Mm -hmm. and that those were quote unquote, outside issues, outside issues, which is a tenant in AA where you aren't supposed to yeah. bring outside issues into the room. And I think mm-hmm. what you said about who we are fundamentally as people is exactly it. Like these are things that are inextricable from who we are and they aren't outside yeah. issues because they don't consider the whole person. If we say that that's an outside issue, that doesn't have anything yeah. to do with sobriety because your experience as a person in all of your different mm-hmm. varieties and different characteristics and different markers is part of what, first off, is involved in trauma, impacts our ability to be resilient, impacts our environment, our stressors. Like to think that these things are separate, I think mm-hmm. is, and this is not speaking specifically about AA, but just on the broader idea of like to think that these things can be separated from the way we drink, how we are mm-hmm. able to quit drinking, stay sober, build a life without alcohol, I think is naive is the word that's coming to mind, but that doesn't even fully encompass what I'm, I'm trying to say 
say like, it's just wrong. Yeah. It's just incorrect. Yeah. And I think yeah. that whole person approach to this and understanding that everything about our day-to-day life, our lived experience is something that directly impacts the way alcohol is going to show up in our lives is mm-hmm. integral to being sober, getting sober, staying sober. And I think with this idea of chosen family too, that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a really big concept in the queer community. I think we can mm-hmm. like extrapolate that idea too, to how we build a life without alcohol. Like there is mm-hmm. in many ways, like an act of choosing of the spaces we go to, the people we interact with, the boundaries mm-hmm. we hold. Because again, those are not outside issues. These are all things that are part of your ability to be sober. And realize I'm like looking at the clock and I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask about EFT and tapping. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with this. I am a, <laughs> a novice practitioner and I don't know a lot about it. And yep. it doesn't totally make sense to me in my science brain, but it does, I think. I have theories, but tell us what it is and why this is a modality that you use and what you Uh see the benefits of it are. And um, Uh yeah, just tell tell me everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you if you've like tried it or kind of poked around. So I'm intrigued to hear that you're a novice practitioner. I love that. So right off the bat, I'm just going to say the first time that I encountered EFT. I think I was reading about it in a book and my gut reaction was, what the fuck? (laughs) What (laughs) is this? It's weird and I don't understand it. I'm pretty sure I said that Mm -hmm. out loud. I closed the book and I put it on a bookcase. I don't even know where that book is. I didn't go back to it. I was like, I don't get it and it's weird. So cut to when I was doing my coaching training goodness, five years ago now, tapping came up in that as a modality. And I was like, oh, I think I know something about that. So I learned a little bit about it there. And then it was like my reticular activating system was like, you got to know about this. Mm. And the universe wanted me to know it. And then everywhere I went there was tapping. I showed up at an event one time and the woman who was speaking on stage, who I ended up hiring as a coach for me, her primary modality was tapping. Mm. Um, I worked with another coach who also is a tapping practitioner. So I just, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And so Mm -hmm. I was so fascinated by my own experiences with it that I then got trained to become a practitioner, like a certified practitioner myself. And now it's a tool that I use with every single client. It's a tool I use in my day-to-day life. So a very sort of quick summary of it is it works with energy meridians in your body, which if Mm -hmm. I've lost you already, please try and hang on. (laughs) In a similar way to something like acupuncture. So we use acupressure points in the body. And by stimulating those points, we are actually sending a signal to our brain, specifically the amygdala, that essentially presses pause on our brain's capacity to go into fight or flight mode. Hmm. And we are stimulating these points as we are verbalizing something. So it could be an issue that you're trying to work through, something you're trying to process or heal. And so through the stimulation, the verbalizing and the pause on the fight or flight response, we are rewiring our brain's experience of that stressful Mm. thing so that when it comes up again, we have a different stress response to it. So that's just like in a nutshell. 
Okay, I was close. I was close. Okay, I, when, tell me what you when thought. When people ask me, I'm like, okay, here's my theory. And <laughs> I, I, I'm a geek. I want to know that something is evidence-based. I want to know that we have researched this. Yeah. Because I want to know how and why it works, even if it seems yep. funky, even if it seems weird. I yep. think EFT tapping is going to be the next EMDR. I think that we are starting to understand that this uh-huh. is useful. We have a ton of anecdotal evidence that this is useful. And I think we're starting to get the data and the research to support it so that we can eventually say it's evidence-based. My, I, I missed the amygdala part. I didn't know that one. But my theory was that it is somatic plus desensitization therapy, essentially. This vocalizing yep. of this experience, you're training the brain while you're also rooting into your body in a physical way. Yep. So I yep. missed the amygdala part. That is very cool. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you, I'm nerdy and I do like science and I am here <laughs> for evidence-based tools. And I I'm very mm-hmm. pleased to share that this is an mm-hmm. evidence-based tool. So for anybody Amazing. who, yeah. So Beth, if you're interested in this, listeners, if you're mm-hmm. interested in this, I'm just looking to my bookcase over here. There is a book called The Science Behind Tapping. It is by mm-hmm. Peta Stapleton, PhD. And she, Amazing. in that book, has compiled all of the research that tells us how effective tapping is. So yeah, it's great. She did such a great job. I follow her on Instagram. She's like so smart and posts amazing content all the time. I'm thrilled to be able to revise my statement that it is officially evidence-based. It is evidence-based. So they're actually, they've put EFT head-to-head with some of the more established, we'll say, psychology modalities Mm -hmm. or like approaches. So like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. Yep. Gone head to head with EFT and not to be smug, but EFT is kicking ass. All the, all it. the way. Well, it's that it's that combination. It's that combination of brain and body, and like bringing it all together. And yes, that that's exactly it. Yeah, going back to this idea of the whole person. Like we cannot continue to separate all of these different parts of who we are. And the more yep. things that we can do to incorporate all of them and bring them all together, I think the better. Yep, absolutely. And I agree with you. And I think the getting into our body piece is like mm-hmm. such a crucial part of healing. Mm-hmm that so many of us just miss or haven't Mm -hmm. been integrating it. And like myself included for many, many years. And so actually getting into your body, calming your central nervous system, creating the internal sense of safety while Mm. also changing how you interact with even uh, previous traumatic experiences, memories, something similar to something that has already happened. We are, we're changing our physiological response, which is so Mm. powerful in case it isn't already clear why I love this tool. It's really valuable. It can be like its application is so broad. And once you know how to use it, it's self-administered. So you can use it anytime you want or need. Um, There are ways to modify it. So it's something that I love to teach all of my clients because I'm like, here you go. Now you know it. Now you have it. And you can pull it out of your back pocket anytime you need it. Mm. And it will support you without question. I think that that's when you talked about being in your body. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. The very, I tell this all the time on this podcast, but this, the very first access point to sobriety for me was Googling yoga to quit drinking. I didn't mm. practice yoga at the time, but I was like, they look like they have their shit together, so maybe they can fix me. And I didn't practice yeah. yoga for the first two or so years of sobriety. 
And when I started getting in that studio and having to be in my body, it was one of the most uncomfortable foreign feelings I'd had in a very long time. And my, my soapbox is like, I don't need to know how to do trigonometry. I need to know how to heal my central nervous system and care for that. I wish I had learned more about my physiology and the way my body works Mm -hmm. and how to care for it in high school than I learned about stupid math that I never used. It's so (laughs) common. And I think that again, talking about like, this is you and me five and six years down the road. I think so many of us too, who are here, who are more holistic practitioners, who teach from this physical part of healing. I think I'm speaking for myself, at least like I didn't know this. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to be in my body. I didn't know how to breathe. I didn't know why it mattered. And I think that this is, you are giving somebody else an access point. You're giving somebody an access point to find a new method, find a new methodology, find a new tool that that might really resonate with them. So I love this. Uh I I wanted to get into that because I think it's so cool. And I've never talked to anybody about it. Mm -hmm. It is so cool. And now I'm, you know, I literally use it almost every day for various Mm -hmm. things. But again, it's, and and I also want to acknowledge that for a lot of people, like what it sounded like for you and certainly for me, I was so disconnected from my body and my feelings and I just spent years yeah. like shoving it all down. And so even getting to a place where I could mm-hmm. put my hands on my heart and not feel all kinds of things where I could look myself in the eyes in the mirror, right? Like, Mm. so for folks who this might be brand new, Mm -hmm. just know that it's okay. And if you can just like start with something simple, like put one hand over your heart and Mm. just breathe deeply for a second and see how it feels. And then if you want to take it off, take it off and call it a day. And on to the next thing. Mm. But it's, you know, it's just been learning how to get into my body, learning how to actually work with my central nervous system and heal it Mm. and repair it after years of damage and neglect, we'll say, has been one of the most transformative parts of Mm -hmm. my experience. And I've really gotten into that work in the last, like during this calendar year, even though tapping has been part of my work and breath work has been part of my work, but like more consistently and Mm -hmm. my body has changed my, some of my chronic illnesses have changed. And Mm. as like a gentle reminder for people, you have the capacity to do this work and you can can heal and it can feel different. And so even if it feels impossible, just know that like what you need is in you and you absolutely yeah. can reconnect with that, you know? And I still cry in yoga all the time, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, went yeah. To, I went to yoga nature the other day and I like didn't even know I needed to cry. And we were there yeah. and she was like talking about imagining this orb in our heart space bouncing around. And there's like cracked up the open in me. And so yeah. like, I can still feel at the top of capacity for people even years into practicing something like this. So I think that that's a really yeah. good call out and caveat to say. Yeah. Well, I am so curious to watch you continue this journey and deep dive into it even more in this calendar year. And I, I one of the things you said to this idea of like, you have the capacity to do this. Uh-huh. I remember being 27, which in hindsight, I'm like, uh, what a baby. I was 27 <laughs> and I was like, I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to be like I am in this moment. Yeah. And now I don't know that person. I don't, I don't know who she is. And, and that's yeah. a reminder I take for myself too, is every time I feel stuck or stuck, 
static or like I'm at this crux where things aren't moving. And I have that thought of like, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to be different. Every single one of us has capacity to change all the time, constantly. I hope I'm changing when I'm 80. I hope I'm a different person when I'm in my 80s. And I believe that I have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And same. And I just, yeah, it's there. And I get how we can get to that place. Like I was with you. I was like, this is it. This Mm -hmm. is fucking it. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, and there Mm -hmm. have been previous iterations, you know, numerous ones between then and now. And so change is possible and you do have the capacity. And even if it doesn't feel like it, and even if you maybe don't believe it, I certainly believe it. Beth believes Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so just, just remember, just remember. Take take our word for it. We we believe in Mm -hmm. you. That's uh, Mm -hmm. my accidental catchphrase. I didn't really mean to have this be something that people know me for, um, but people do know me for it. Apparently they send me t-shirts with it on all the time, but is I'm rooting for you. Like I believe in you. I believe in your ability to change. And yeah, if you can't believe in yourself, at least you got somebody else in your corner. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. And same. And I say something similar. I'm like cheering you on, like always, Mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what people need because we, for a variety of reasons, whether it's alcohol or otherwise, we sometimes have filters on when it comes to how we see ourselves. Mm. And sometimes, you know, especially when I am just starting with clients, I'm just Mm -hmm. like, I wish you could see what I see because the potential is endless and vast. And like you were doing this huge, courageous, brave thing Mm. that so many people don't even attempt and you're here and you're doing Mm. it. And I know it doesn't feel good right now, but you're still showing up and like, let Mm. that speak volumes to your capacity. Yeah. Yeah. When people always say like, I only have seven days. I'm like, do you know how many people cannot or will not go seven days without alcohol? Like that's a big deal. That's a really huge deal. Seven hours. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. This has been delightful. And I wish we could keep talking about tapping specifically forever because I'm like, I'm going to do it right now. But (laughs) I want to be mindful of your time and your energy. So last question for you today. If your story were to be made into a book, what would it be titled and what kind of book would it be? You're laughing Uh already. Yeah. So, and I'll share this with everybody, what I shared with you, but like, I anticipate writing a book. And so this, when I was like, oh man, this feels like a homework assignment from my editor. (laughs) Working draft, working draft. Yeah. So I feel very confident that it would be part memoir, part manifesto. And Mm. there would be, you know, a lot of storytelling from my own experiences and then some kind of like feminist, revolutionary, healing, something. And I feel like the word evolution would be in it. And that's as far as I've gotten. Okay. We'll we'll accept that. I also love that because the mantra that got me through early sobriety was I trust the evolution of my life. Again, talking about not being fixed, not being stuck. Yes. Uh, That's a a Holly Whitaker. I got to give credit to Holly for that one. But yeah, yeah, that evolution is really powerful. Yeah, it is. It is. And like the only constant is change. If we can get on board with that idea, <laughs> then that applies to us too, right? Like, Otherwise it's a runaway train. Yeah, totally. Totally. Change is possible and you can do it. You can totally do it. Mm. 
I love that. All right. Where can our people connect with you? Where can they find your work? How can they follow you on social media? How do they plug into your world? Yeah. So I would say I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at Ms. Amy C. Willis. I also have a private Facebook community for sober and sober curious women. If they're interested in joining, they can just search on Facebook, the Whole and Well Sober Collective. My website is wholeandwell.com. So H-O-L-A-N-D-W-E-L-L.com. So yeah, Whole and Well is my company. Beautiful. We'll put all that in the show notes so y'all be able to link out to that. But Amy, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for your story. Um, I know that this is going to resonate with so many people and you have just added an entire new tool to so many toolboxes. So I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Amy C. Willis. A side note, Since recording this episode, I've actually begun integrating tapping into my regular self-care routine, and I truly believe in it now more than ever. If you give it a try, let us know. I'm super curious to know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends. Mm-hmm.